Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you, like many of us listening, grew up in the United States, then you are probably familiar with the iconic face on the Quaker Oats box, who for a long time, as a kid, I did not know that uh, the Quakers or the Religious Society of Friends were, in fact, uh, religion. Yeah, I always thought he was just like a pilgrim. Yeah, I thought he was just like old-timey, vaguely colonial. I'm picturing him in my head, and I think I'm maybe even picturing him wrong and inserting a pilgrim hat and sort of a buckle uh, onto this figure, but I do not believe that is what he looks like. I think he just has white hair uh, and kind of a frock of some sort, yeah? He does have a hat. Oh, he does have a hat. He does have a hat. Okay. It's not It's not super—I uh, I, I hesitate to use the word. It's not super pilgrimy, I guess, but yeah, he's also got that kind of—you know that uh, neck ruff, ruffle thing? It's not quite a cravat, not quite an ascot. Anyway, I'm Ben. Oh, hey, I'm Noel. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm digging up pictures, Google images of the Quaker Oats guy. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna dissect this for a hot minute. Um, yeah, it's it's, a, it's sort of a an ascot. Mm-hmm. What do you call that? The, the thing that's like a ruffle, like a like a, that's like a puffy shirt, a puffy shirt kind of situation. Yeah, but I feel like it's just the it's just a neck piece. Well, someone will tell us, and also a you know, bib, maybe a bib to keep perhaps. his oats from dribbling onto him. Perhaps, mm-hmm. yeah, he's prepared. Makes me wonder if his hair's real or if that's also, uh, you know, like a it's like a bib for his ears. I gotta say, looking back on the picture, the Quaker Oats guy now, he's way younger than I thought he was. You know what I mean? He's got no big lines on his face. He's got a shiny baby esque, uh, I don't know, sheen, to rosy him. cheeks. There we go. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, it's unfair to him. He's a, he's he's a what do they call it? He's a silver fox. He's a real smoke show. He's a he's a, he's a real oat show. He's a, he's a real oat show. He's absolute snack. Uh, he is what the internet calls a zaddy. Uh, speaking of the Religious Society of Friends and friends in general, we'd like to introduce a very dear friend of ours, the third half of the show, super producer Casey Pegram. By the way, the guy on the Quaker Oats box, apparently known as Larry. Larry. Yeah, within Quaker Oats circles, enthusiasts, uh, insiders. I don't know. Within Quaker Oat meals. <laughs> the, that's weird. They must have made that name up. I, I wonder if it's short for Lawrence. Maybe. Well, I guess not to get too relativistic about it, but all names are made up at some point. Speaking of names and fantastic segues, we're not doing an episode today on the Quaker Oats box, which is a shame because now I want to do one. It seems so interesting. But we are doing something related to Quakers, right? It's true. And I just we wanted to get that out of our system, uh, the Quaker Oats guy being our only inroad into the uh, the, the Quaker faith, the Quaker <laughs> tradition. Um, and, you know, I, I own that and I'm fine with it. But you know what? You can always change. Every day is a shiny new opportunity to learn something different and to broaden your horizons. And we did that uh, when it comes to Quakerism. Because as it turns out, the story of the abolition of slavery in the United States has some unsung heroes that were members of the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. Right. Yeah, and we we tend to look back on the actions of the Religious Society of Friends uh, as being generally benevolent, but we have to be careful when we look at history and we want to avoid painting with too broad a brush because, you see, it was not always the case that Quakers were abolitionists here. In fact, when the Quakers first came to the North American continent, Members of their society owned slaves, just as many other colonists did. And they seemed, sadly, okay with the hypocrisy, the discrepancy between their stated religious views and their real-life practice of enslaving other human beings. How did this change? How did the, the Quakers go from absolutely hypocritical people to staunch abolitionists? A lot of it goes down to the actions of a single man, a man whom is often forgotten or, you know, not mentioned in the history books. Yeah, a man by the name of Benjamin Lay, who is uh, remarkable— not remarkable, I guess, but stands out in, in history because of, in part, of his stature. He was only four feet tall. Yep. He was born in 1682 in Essex. This was a part of England that at the time was known for uh, fabrics, textile production, and then also religious radicalism and protest. He was born into the Quaker faith. He was a third-generation Quaker, and as he grew up into a young man and into an adult, he became more and more, um, I would say, committed to the faith. Which is interesting because I believe his father, William, wasn't particularly devout. No, no, not at all. That's right. William was a Quaker, but his first wife was from outside of the religion. The family were pretty well off. They were landowners. They had some buildings, but they were always going to be suspect. They were always going to be sus in some way because they were members of a Protestant faith that was not the faith of the Church of England. And the Church of England, of course— is not going to take kindly to what it sees as dissident religions. Speaking of which, really quickly, um, since we're you know in the in the spirit of broadening our Quaker horizons, what exactly does the Quaker faith consist of? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we know that eventually they become abolitionists, but they've also been known, at least throughout U.S. history, for being conscientious objectors, pacifists, you know, during World War I and World War II alike. And they had some pretty progressive views, right? They sure did. Um, again, the Religious Society of Friends, um, is, is it, it continues to be one of the most radical Christian sects that came out of the Reformation. And they kind of eschewed all of these ideas of creeds and iconic, iconography and a lot of the, uh, the hierarchy of religious authority. And uh, quote to quote uh, an article on FGCQuaker.org called Quakerism 101, uh, they uh, had taken out everything except dependence on the divine spirit for guidance and power. And a man by the name of George Fox um, was considered to be one of the main um, kind of uh, forces driving the Quaker movement. And they rely on something that they call testimonies, which is very important. Um, it describes the witness uh, to truth within the human heart that is acted out in their everyday lives. In other words, just kind of goodness and being kind and being good to others that's not just with their words, but something that's much more to do with their deeds uh, and the idea that God is within us all and that all of life is interconnected. It kind of sounds a little uh, a little hippie-ish in a way. Yeah, they were also um, they were also prison reformers, controversially in Philadelphia. That is a story for another day. Today we're examining the life of Benjamin Lay, aka the Quaker Comet. He was a sick kid. So as he was growing up in his early years, his parents understandably thought maybe he'll just get over his illness, you know, and in his the pace of his growth will catch up in his adolescence. Yet as he grew older, it became clear that he had some sort of medical condition and this was affecting his growth. Right now, it's tough for us to have a definitive understanding of his condition, but historians agree the most likely condition that he was suffering from was a form of dwarfism that was also associated with a curved spine. And that's why he stood about four feet tall and he had a humped back, but he was not um, he was not a frail person by any means. Me being a bit of a masochist, I'm going to give this pronunciation a try of the scientific name of the condition. It was spondylpiphyseal dysplasia congenita. Eh? Decent try. Mm -hmm. And he got work on a farm, right, in the 1690s with his elder half-brother, William. William was not a Quaker. However, Benjamin got along well with his half-brother, William, and he worked as a shepherd. He grew old enough to get into his own line of work, a trade of his own, a business of his own, and so his father sent him away to become a glover, which is cool. There's, it could be someone's job to make gloves. Oh, that's what a glover is? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, would, I would hope so. It doesn't seem like too far a leap. I wonder if people have the surname glover, worked as glovers in the past. Just like you got a shoemaker, that's a tinker, right? Mm -hmm. Not one who, I mean, I don't know, like a, maybe a glove. I mean, I, I well, help. a tinker is a, um, a cobbler would be a shoemaker. Ah, correct. A what is tinker, a tinker? Uh, sometimes tinkers are people who mend pots oh. or sharpen knives. Glover is somebody who's too old for this There you go. <laughs> Casey on the case. Casey on the case. Yeah, a glover is someone who makes or sells gloves. 
So anyway, you know, it was good that we didn't assume. Yeah, we, we never assume on Ridiculous History. We always uh, uh, trust but verify. There we go. Just like Reagan said. Today, we're fortunate enough to talk about another group that understands the importance of being heard and having a voice. It's very true, Ben. And it comes at a very important time of the year. It's that time of year when everyone is traveling or running around getting thoughtful gifts or, you know, maybe phoning it in a little bit, hopefully thoughtful gifts, for the people that they care about the most. So think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. And now, my friends, is the best time to do that with a special offer of 53%, not just 50%, my you. They give you an extra 3% off your first three months, 53% off. And this allows you, like Benjamin Lay, to be a self-educator. You have access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers in fiction, motivational works, mysteries, educational titles, thrillers, and more. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two exclusive Audible originals you will not hear anywhere else. And those Audible originals are fantastic. And I have to say, and as an Audible subscriber myself, I always am really hustling to get through those three titles every month so I can start anew the next month and find myself constantly just in like this warm audio bath of, of storytelling and knowledge gaining. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two exclusive Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Right now, I am working my way through Haruki Murakami's Wild Sheep Chase and loving every minute of it. Also, highly recommend Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book, read by the author. I love hearing a book read in the author's own voice, and Gaiman is a fantastic narrator. And right now, for a limited time, just for hanging out with our show, you can get three months of Audible for just six ninety-five a month. That is, as we mentioned earlier, more than half off the regular price. Just visit audible.com slash ridiculous or text ridiculous to 500-500. So don't forget, you can get three titles every month, one audiobook and two exclusive audio originals that you can't hear anywhere else for free with your monthly subscription. Just visit audible.com slash ridiculous or text ridiculous to 500-500. So what happens with his apprenticeship in, is a life of glovery the life for Benjamin Lay? Gloving? Glovery? I like glovery better. I think you nailed it. Yeah, um, no, it wasn't the life for him. I, I think not. He liked it a lot less than being a shepherd. I think he, I don't know, I'm going to editorialize here a little bit. I think he probably preferred the out of doors, you know, <laughs> roaming with the yeah. with the herds and, and the sheeps and his uh, his best dog by his side, you know? He liked making mittens and so on, but he didn't glove it. Mm. God, that was rough. I'll allow it. Oh man, why? So so yeah, you're right, right? He 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 probably looked back on his shepherding days and thought that was a that was a nicer life. I was out in the and I was in the outdoors. I had a more dynamic day-to-day. I was doing stuff. And his next uh, life, career choice, you know, supports that because he decided that it was the sailor's life for him. Mm-hmm. Which I guess was much easier to do at that point. You think so? I don't know. Why? Seems like a lot of hard work. No, it was much easier to run away. Run away. And not get caught. Not, yeah. Why, why, why would he have to worry about getting caught? Oh, yeah, he's 21. He can do what he wants. Did it even matter back then? It's his life. Yeah, but... Let, let that boy run. Let that boy fly. Let those ponies ride. Yeah, uh, well, he wanted to see the world. He knew there was a huge, vast uh, realm of experience just beyond the visible horizon. And he said, you know, I might die. I might get 
grievously injured because the same year he ran away, 1703, around like thousands of British sailors had lost their lives in a major cyclone. So he knew what was at stake and he decided YOLO. Yeah. And um, it ended up being a good move because it opened his eyes to the possibilities of that the world had to offer. So he, you know, for about 12 years, he kind of flitted between London and uh, the sea, his second home of the sea. Uh, He'd be out uh, on voyages, I guess you could say, for months and months. And he got used to sharing very tight quarters with um, a very diverse crew of individuals. Uh, Lots of different ethnic groups were represented. And he kind of learned, literally, how to get along with his fellow man. Yes, yeah, it's true. Like, literally, you have to get along with your fellow men in order to cooperate in a sailing situation, or else you're all going to die. Right. The only person who's better than other people would be the captain. And everybody else kind of follows that person's uh, orders and their whims. That's not entirely true. The hierarchy is rank and therefore merit-based. But a good captain should be down there in the trenches with his mates, in my opinion. You know, I, my, I haven't captained a ship yet, uh, so I, I, I can't speak for sure. I'd like to think that's the truth. Second career? I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe. I, I'm going to, I got to learn a little bit more about gloving. You cut, you cut a very striking figure for a captain, I would say. That That's. That, thank you. And now, due to an ankle injury, I do have a, a seaworthy limp. So I look like I could be on a boat. I guess now I just need to get rid of the one of the eyes, right? I don't think you have to do that. You can just wear a patch. Don't yeah. you have a patch for one of those characters you play where you meet random people and yep. pose as a, a patchman? <laughs> a patchman? Yeah. Uh, funny that you say that. Uh, there's There's pretty strong evidence that the eye patch motif for pirates specifically or sailors in general doesn't come from losing an eye. It's to, you've heard this, to preserve night vision when they go down into the cabin beneath what? the deck. Yes. I never heard that in yeah. my life. Yeah. Have you heard that, Casey? I don't think I have, no. So the idea is that they don't have something wrong with their left or right eye. They switch the patch when they walk out of the sunshine below deck because there was very little lighting. See, I always thought when you saw them switch the patch, it was just kind of meant to be a joke. Oh, yeah. The fact that they, like, don't really have a missing eye. Like a Mel Brooks kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, so Benjamin Lay did not at this point have an eye patch, but he had a hard-earned rep. And I like what you pointed out about how diverse his experience was. Because we have to remember, this is a time where people would spend their entire lives living, I I mean, barely going more than 100 miles from where they were physically born. And this guy traveled across the globe. He gained a tolerance for people, tolerance through familiarity and experience, that was absent from a lot of his peers, even his fellow Quakers. He identified with the underdogs. He was terrified and horrified and disgusted by the stories he heard of the slave trade. And he never worked on a slave ship. He was uh, not friendly to people who did. He, we, we think he learned to read while he was at sea, which is interesting and kind of inspiring because, you know, you, you can't blame people for just assuming most sailors at the time in the 16 or 1700s would be illiterate. Turns out they were actually monster readers. You know what they say about people who assume, Ben? What's that? They're jerks. <laughs> uh, I learned something interesting just a second ago, too, just mm. a quick aside. Yeah. Um, do you know where the name Quaker comes from? 
is it from a it's a physical motion right it sure is but george fox again the founder or one of the main forces uh, you know the, the credited founder of quakerism apparently once told a magistrate uh, in in like Jesus flipping over the money changers table fashion to quake at the name of God, and uh, and it stuck. Yeah, similar to the uh, Shakers, right? That's like a Shaker hymn, shape songs. Uh huh. Shape note singing, right? Okay, so the Shakers. Just to clear this up real quick, the Shakers came from the Quakers. The woman who started the Shaker movement, a lady named Mother Anne Lee was formerly a Quaker, and she incorporated some of her Quaker experience into Shaker practices. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Shakers lived in much more Amish-type situations, self-contained subsistence communities, and they were celibate. Right. That's the thing. Their religion did not increase through reproduction. It increased through proselytization. But does that really work? The Shakers uh, were not as numerous as the Quakers. It would seem so. And we also have this idea, I think, nowadays of Quakers being pretty literate, well-educated people. Benjamin, at the time, did not receive a lot of formal schooling, but he grew up, you know, he, he learned to read on the mean tides of the Atlantic. I don't know. And he, and he also became uh, very, very well-read and self-educated as an adult. There was a moment where uh, I think that's really cemented his hate of slavery uh, when he was working as a shopkeeper in Barbados. It's true. And up to this point, he had heard tales of the slavers and the slave ships and refused to work uh, on one of those types of ships. So he already had kind of drawn a line in the sand there. But um, there was a time when he was living in London in between voyages where he met uh, someone named Sarah Smith. And she, like him, also suffered from dwarfism. Um, and they very quickly fell in love and, and got married. And they shared uh, both the f- their faith and their, their physical conditions, and it really kind of bonded them together. And they started to kind of really lift each other up and influence each other in these very uh, forward-thinking ideas of the time. And they moved to Barbados in 1718, where there was a small Quaker community. Unfortunately, though, uh, something they didn't realize before they they set off for this new life was that the island um, was built on the the practice they both so despised. Yes. In their minds, uh, the slaves, the human slaves, were treated worse than the livestock. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. 
<laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So they took action. This was an activist couple, we have to remember. They held open meetings. They they offered to feed anybody in the island's enslaved population. And that made the white uh, slaver population incredibly upset. And they said, you know, stop interfering with this, even to the point where these quote-unquote masters and mistresses of slaves, as described in Atlas Obscura, called for the Lays to be banished from the island. Luckily, the Lays had already made plans to skedaddle, and so it was that in 1720 they returned to England, but Lay was, he now had a taste for righteous causes. And I won't spoil the rest of the story of reading the headline of this Atlas Obscura article, but it is by Natasha Frost and is a fantastic read. Mm -hmm. So in, when he came back to England, he was disowned, formally expelled from two different Quaker congregations. Eventually, the couple boarded a ship bound for Philadelphia in 1732. Benjamin and Sarah thought they would join up with the famous William Penn's Holy Experiment. They wanted to go to what he called the good land, Pennsylvania, and they thought they would have a future with liberty, a future free from religious persecution, a future where people were, call it a hot take, treating other people like human beings. That sounds nice. Lay arrived in Philadelphia uh, completely appalled um, because, you know, slavery was almost as much ingrained into the culture as what he had seen in Barbados. And according to some uh, stats laid out in uh, the Smithsonian Magazine article, 
The Quaker Comet Was the Greatest Abolitionist You've Never Heard Of by Marcus Redeker. One in ten individuals in Philadelphia was an enslaved person. And by contrast, uh, that that sadly compares favorably to Barbados, where almost nine out of ten people on the island were enslaved. There was also, it feels weird saying this, the the levels of violence and repression were apparently lower, but still, it's a situation where slavery is involved, chattel slavery. So violence and repression are still a daily thing that happens all the time. And Lay notes in his writing that enslaved men would plow, sow, thresh, winnow, split rails, cut wood, clear land, make ditches and fences, fodder cattle, run and fetch up the horses. They were doing all of the work. And he saw women who were enslaved doing all of the work in the dairy, in the kitchen, inside and outside. And then this made him look uh, with disgust upon the slave owners who he saw as very lazy, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure it affected his view of humanity in general to a degree, or maybe there was a moment where he was like, gosh, you know, is everyone just awful? Uh, But he didn't give up, right? And that's the most important part of any story like this is he saw things that he um, found disturbing and disgusting. uh, And rather than just throw his hands up and give up on humanity, he, he tried to change it. Yep. And he partnered up with a guy named Ralph Sandiford. Ralph Sandiford had earlier published an indictment of slavery against the recommendations of the Board of Overseers in the community, and that was about three years ago. When Lay ran into Sandiford, Ralph Sandiford was not doing well. Also, I love the picture of somebody to be named Ralph in the 1700s. It feels like a 1980s name. It really it? does. It's also a, a very popular chain of grocery stores in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so Lay found this guy. He wasn't doing well. He had a lot of bodily infirmities. Lay also noted that he had a sore affliction of the mind. And to Benjamin Lay, this was all caused by persecution from the leaders of the Quaker community. He had, uh, Ralph Sandiford, that is, had moved from Philadelphia nine miles northeast to a cabin in the woods to get away from these people who were pushing him around. And Lay visits with Ralph. They they speak of many things, the injustices of the world and how to correct them for almost a year. And eventually he spoke with Sandiford when Ralph Sandiford was on his deathbed in a sort of delirium. And Sanford passed away, only 40 years old, May 1733. You got to think that this was a meaningful friendship to Lay because he had just experienced such abject horror in Barbados and just seen the worst of people. Uh, for him to find somebody like this who could kind of share his uh, his understanding of, you know, the common good and working with your fellow man and all that. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, I think you mentioned this, Ben. Um, he published that treatise against the objection of the board of overseers. I don't want to understate that enough. Like that is literally like the body, the organization that, you know, governs slavery. I never even thought of that as being a thing, but of course there had to be some kind of a, you know, organization behind it. It's really, uh, it, it, it kind of breaks your heart to think about. It's a banality of evil kind of thing. Yeah. So Lay takes up the torch from Ralph and he starts 
doing stuff similar to the protests he and Sarah had staged before. He has public protests, and he says, I'm going to shock the Friends of Philadelphia, the Quaker members of the community, into awareness because they have their own deep, abiding moral failings. He said, look at all the hard labor that goes into making these commodities that are making you so much money, tobacco and sugar particularly. He shows up at a Quaker meeting that happens annually with three large tobacco pipes stuck in his bosom, stuck in his chest. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean, though? Like strapped to him like John Popper carries around the harmonicas? (sighs) Yeah, like John Popper, I guess. He sits between these galleries of men and women, elders and ministers who are seated separately. He just sits there and stews. And as the meeting ends, he rises without saying a word and takes one of those large pipes and, quote, no one asked you about this quote, dashes one pipe among the men ministers, one among the women ministers, and the third among the congregation assembled. Wait a minute. Is he throwing them or is he hitting people? I think he's flogging them with it. How? I don't understand. You feel like by the time he got to the third pipe, people would have wised up. And also, how is he doing this simultaneously? Is he doing it like one group at a time? Yeah. And why do they each get their own pipe? I don't understand. Couldn't he have accomplished the same thing with one pipe, Ben? I don't know. I guess it was a different time, pipe-wise. Yeah. Uh, but uh, bottom line is it, it, create, it created a real hubbub. Uh, okay. Yeah, here we go. Uh, this is from Smithsonian Mag. I'm going to quote the article directly because it does a really good job of summing this up. Um, With each smashing blow, he protested slave labor, luxury, and the poor health caused by smoking the stinking sotweed. Never heard of tobacco referred to as sotweed before. Sotweed. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was really trying to band together his people, you know, toward a common cause, which he knew they were capable of in their hearts. This is only the beginning of Benjamin Lay's career, really, as an activist, as a protester, right? It's true. And you might be asking yourselves, really, guys? You're going to make this a two-parter? Really? You're going to do that to me? Well, yeah, we really are. The answer is yes. It's a hard yes. Because this is an important episode. It's an important episode. We want to give it its due. And uh, we hope that you will join us for part two of the life and times of Benjamin Lay because, no spoilers, things get pretty intense and he does some... I would say very innovative protesting. Very innovative, bordering on the absurd and uh, veering into sort of performance art territory, as you'll start to hear. Um, So you can wait. It's just a couple days because this one is absolutely going to be worth it. The payoff is there, we promise. Agreed, and this ends our episode, but not our show. Continue the conversation with us. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. We want to hear your stories of other abolitionists, other people on the side of the good guys who, for one reason or another, have been kind of forgotten by history. It's true, and you can find us in those locations at Ridiculous History on Twitter and Instagram. Um, On Facebook, you can join our Ridiculous Historians group simply by naming Ben or myself in the little question that pops up, and then you're in, and you can join us for all kinds of fun discussions with your fellow Ridiculous Historians, including meme posts, uh, you know, musings on all kinds of historical uh, subjects. 
subjects, and, you know, it's just a genuinely good group of folks. So we really recommend you checking that out. Hot takes from young Quizzles himself. Yes, exactly. Which is how I'm referring to the Quizzler yeah, now. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in there lurking pretty regularly. He's around every corner. You can probably even uh, engage him in a flame war if you, uh, if you so choose. You can also check out every single episode we've ever done on our website, RidiculousHistoryShow.com. We are not just a show. We are also people, and you can follow us individually on the internet. I am at How Now Noel Brown on Instagram exclusively. I am at Ben Bolin on Instagram. I am at Ben Bolin HSW. Uh, the the old school House of Works heads know why. And Twitter. And uh, let's see. Well, we've got we've got to get cracking on part two. We sure do. In the meantime, big thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Christopher Hasiotis, his shape lingers in the corner, sort of like one of those aura clouds you see. Uh, and then you've got this other shape that sort of looms overhead like a dark rain cloud, and that would be Jonathan Strickland, the Quister's spirit. A.K.A. Young Quizzles. Himself. <laughs> I don't know why I'm cracking up. I like it. Also thanks to uh, Gabe Luzier. Where would we be without a mention of Gabe? Uh, also thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat. Thanks to Benjamin Lay and Thanks to all the historians out there who preserved this person's story and brought them back into the mainstream narrative. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.